Luke 18, 1 through 17. Please follow along in the scriptures as I read this, and then let's ask that God would help us as we study his word for his people today. Luke chapter 18, verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. For to such, uh, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. I want to preach to you this morning on a simple topic, and that is confident prayer. I want us to be a people who pray with confidence. Let's pray with confidence that God will give us the help we need this morning as we study this text and apply it to our lives today. Amen? Pray with me. Father, we we ask that as we come into this text that you would indeed help us, that we would get it that we would get it right. I pray that I would get it right as I explain the truth here, that I would preach your word faithfully to your people, that I I pray that you would help me apply it, I pray that you would help me preach it with passion, and I pray, God, that we would receive it well, that we might be a people who come before you with boldness, with persistence, with humility, and that we pray with confidence. It's in Jesus' name, amen. I wonder this morning what you think the church today needs. Some might say, I think the church needs a van to pick up people that can't come to church. Others might say, I I believe the church needs a building. Amen? That would be nice. Still some might say, no, it's not a van or a building. Really what we need are more effective ministries and and new methods that that really work and reach people. I wonder if you would agree with E.M. Bounds, who over a hundred years ago, he said this, 
What the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more novel methods, but men whom the Holy, Holy Ghost can use, men of prayer, mighty men in prayer. Now, while E.M. Bounds wrote those words over a hundred years ago, I think his truth that he's declaring here, I think it applies to us today. What we need is not nicer stuff, newer methods, newer facilities. What we as a church globally in America, in Maryland, in Baltimore, and here at the Garden Church, what we need are people who know how to pray. Mighty people who pray. So I want to ask you this simple rhetorical question. Don't answer it. Do you pray? Are you a person of prayer? Now, many people do pray. But not all prayers are created equal. We're going to talk about that a little later. For example, the self-righteous pray. And they pray with this sense of entitlement. They believe that God owes them. This is the kind of person who prays and then gets mad if God doesn't answer their prayer in the way that they want him to, to answer it. Now on the flip side, though, the unrighteous don't pray. They don't believe they're qualified to pray. If there is a God, they might say, if there is a God, why would he listen to me anyway? And so I'm not going to pray at all. I wonder if it's possible for us to realize and, and feel very unqualified, yet at the same time, pray with confidence. You see my dilemma. Let me put it to you in a, a couple questions. Is it only the self-righteous that can pray with confidence? To have the audacity to come before a holy, eternal God and ask for something? Or is it only the unrighteous that feel a sense of being unqualified? What about those of us who certainly feel unqualified? Yet we want to pray with confidence before God. How do we, how do we pray? How do we do this? How do we become mighty people of, of prayer? Well, we're in a series on Luke here, and we get to the 18th chapter. And we come across a couple parables. Both of these parables have prayer as the topic. And we're going to learn two simple points from these parables. Number one, how God wants us to pray. And number two, how it's possible that we can even pray. And I hope these parables, I hope God's word inspires and encourages you this morning to be a person of confident prayer. So let's dive in in the first parable, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 18. We see the first big point, and that is this. I'll say it again. Number one, how God wants us to pray. I'll give you the answer. Persistently. He wants us to be persistent in our prayers. As many of you know, I have a dog now. My daughter has a dog. She paid for it. But it's really my dog. She's glaring at me right now. Um, it's our dog. He's a six-month-old mix between a poodle and a golden retriever. They call them golden doodles. And um, most of the time I hate him. Espe uh, that's, that's a joke. I'm being a little over the top. But let me just say something. The dog's got diarrhea right now. All right? I I'm just going to be straight up. 
I tell it as it is in this pulpit. I'm going to tell you as it is. I woke up last night at about 11.30. Yep, I was in bed by 11.30. All right, some of you were just getting home. I was waking up because my dog was barking, and I thought to myself, I'm going to let that animal bark. But he barked again and again and again. And I said to myself, I don't care what his needs are, but I know what my needs are. I need to sleep. So I'm going to let him out so he'll stop barking, give him what he wants so that I can sleep. So I went down at about 11.30, let the dog out, did his little squirt in the backyard. And, uh, and uh, uh, two hours later, He's barking again. Same thing. Take him out. Two hours after that, he's barking again. Now let me tell you, at this point, I'm hoping that he has some incredible illness that will kill him before morning. (laughs) My point is this. His pers- even though I didn't care about him feeling good, I cared about my own desires, I cared about my own wants, I cared about my own sleep, his persistence got him what he wants, even though I was doing it for selfish reasons. Now that's the kind of parable that Jesus tells in this passage. In verse 1, Jesus tells us the intended effect of this parable, and that is that they should always pray and not lose heart before God. Because, listen, church, it is easy to pray and lose heart. Jesus knows that. It's easy to pray for something godly, not a selfish, we get it, all right? Not a selfish, but a godly desire, like thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's easy to pray and to not see any change and then to Jesus says, I don't want you to lose heart. I don't want you to quit. Verse 2, let me give you this parable, Jesus says. Verse 2, there's a judge. Now this judge is an unrighteous judge. It says in verse 2, he neither feared God nor respected man. That means that he doesn't care what you think. He doesn't care about your needs He doesn't care about your desires. He is an unrighteous judge that only cares about his own desires and comforts. Verse 3, we see that there's a widow. Being a widow, she is helpless in this society. She's probably poor. She has no one to defend her. But this widow has two things. Number one, she knows that she's been wronged. And number two, she is stubborn. And so she goes to this unrighteous judge, her only hope in society. And she says, give me justice against my adversary. Now he refuses her. But she is stubborn. Finally, he says to himself, I don't care about humanity. I don't care about God. Meaning, I don't care about justice. But, verse 5, he's bothered by her. He says, she's going to beat me down. In the original Greek, the literal words read, she's going to give me a black eye. I can't take this anymore. She is persistent. She is stubborn. And so therefore, what does he do? He he goes ahead and he gives her what she wants. He gives justice. He answers her persistent request. Now, in verse 7, we turn into the lesson here. Verse 7, Jesus says, Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? This isn't to say that God is the unrighteous judge. It's not to say that God is, is, uh, uh, doesn't care about the needs and <clears throat> will get bothered by you. 
This is a certain style of parable that falls into what I'm going to call a how much more so style of parable. Jesus uses them all the time. Essentially what he's saying is this, is if this judge who is selfish, if this judge will give this poor widow what she wants because of her persistence, how much more so will a good and righteous father give his children what they need, what they want? If Joel will take his dog outside because he barks all night, how much more so will God answer your barking if we are persistent, as we are persistent? That's the point of the parable. You live in a, in a sinful world, church. You are victims of injustice. You have been wronged. You have been tricked. You have been hurt. You have been taken advantage of. God wants you to come to him. And say, God, give me justice. Make things right. Come to my aid. And he wants you to do it with persistence. Again and again and again. And listen, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Often when I pray, God, give me justice against my adversary, I'm not even thinking of a human being. But there is this greater oppression that's against us beating us down, tricking us, taking advantage of us, and that is Satan, his demonic world, in combination with our own flesh, our inclinations. And we come before God and we persist. I often tell my kids, stop asking me. If you're a parent, you know those words well, right? Eric, anybody else? Don, you know that? I see that hand. Amen. Amen. <laughs> you know it? Yeah. Stop asking. That's like typically what parents, if you don't have kids, it's just learn that phrase. Stop asking. Now you're qualified to be a parent. <laughs> Kids have a way of uh, uh, persistence. Can I have this? Can I have it now? Can I have chocolate milk? Can I, can I have chocolate milk? I want chocolate milk. I don't, want, I don't want regular milk. Can I have chocolate milk? We don't have any chocolate. Okay, can I have chocolate milk? <laughs> Stop asking me. I just find it I find it interesting. I don't have this massive aha over it. I just find it interesting that Jesus tells us the opposite. That God actually wants his children to be persistent in their requests. To come before him. Now, like I said, not all prayers are created equal. It doesn't mean we bring sinful desires before him and ask for that. It doesn't mean that we have uh, self-glorifying requests that we ought to continually bring before God. It doesn't mean that we should have selfish, vain requests that we should continually bring before God. We should pray as Jesus teaches us for thy will to be done, not my will to be done. But what he's saying is, is be persistent. Keep asking. Don't stop Ask him again and again and again. The Jews in this day believed that you should only pray three times a day. They took the, uh, Daniel as an example. And the rabbis taught, based on Daniel's example, that you should only pray three times a day. Limit your requests. If you're going to pray for the same thing, limit it to three times. And they explained that it would weary God or it would tire out God. 
What Jesus is teaching is this, in contrast with the popular teaching of his day. He's saying, listen, you might get tired asking God for the same thing over and over and over, but God will not get tired of hearing you ask him for the same thing over and over and over. We cannot tire out God. We can't make him weary from our prayers. Meaning pray three times a day and pray 300 times a day. Over and over, continually coming before the throne of God and asking sometimes for the exact same thing. If you are praying through a list and that list hasn't changed for 10 years and you haven't seen an answer, Jesus is saying, don't be discouraged. Just keep coming before him. Keep praying. Now he goes on to say that God will answer. In verse 7, it says, will he delay long over them? Meaning, is he going to take forever in answering your request? Now, some of you say, yes, absolutely. He's taking forever. Especially when you read the next couple words in verse 8. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Everybody say, speedily. Well, speedily, for God doesn't necessarily mean speedily for us. The Bible says with God one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. God might not answer your prayer requests as quickly as you think he should. Many of your prayer requests will be answered in your lifetime. But there's not a guarantee that they will be answered even in your lifetime. But every prayer for God's will, for his kingdom to come, any application of that, it will be answered. Going on in verse 8, he says, nevertheless, when will it be answered? Look at the text. He says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Meaning, in this day, it will be a faithless generation. And the Son of Man will come. And at that coming, all of our requests in his name, in his will, will find their final amen and resolution. Where do I get that from? Revelation. Chapter 8, verse 4 and 5. It, Revelation 8, 4 and 5 pictures all of the prayers of the saints being collected as incense in heaven. All of the every prayer that you have prayed, and you feel like you've been praying this prayer for 10 years and you see no response. What Revelation 8 tells us is that it's being collected in an incense burner. And one day, when the Son of Man comes, in verse 5, it says an angel is going to light those prayers on fire. Meaning every prayer of the persecuted church Everybody who was about to be tied to a pole and burned to death for their faith and they're praying, God, bring justice. God, save me from this. Every one of those prayers is heard and collected in heaven. Every child that was neglected and abused and prayed before God, bring justice. Everybody who's been wronged, praying, God, make it right. There is no prayer that has not been unheard. And in verse 5 of chapter 8 of the book of Revelation, it says an angel will light those prayers on fire and they will be hurled upon the earth with peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. I want you to get the cosmic reality of your praying. You see what I'm saying? Like, you pray, sometimes we, we're so narrow-minded with our prayers. We're so this-worldly. We pray before God persistently, 
Some and many of those prayers may be seen, uh, answered in this lifetime. But God will not forget one of them. And when the Son of Man comes, all of your prayers will be answered. Now this leads us, though, to a next question that Jesus answers in the next parable. And that is this. How can we pray like this? How is it possible to pray? Meaning, like, how can we who are not always victims, but we are the perpetrator? Like, you know, some people, they're praying for justice and they're looking at you. You were the one that wronged them. I know I've wronged people. How can we, who are not just victims, but we who have wronged others, how can we believe that we can go before God and be persistent in our prayers? How can we have the audacity to believe that that we can come before an eternal holy God and and ask over and over and over and over. Well, let's go to the next parable. The next parable is on prayer, but I think the main connector between these two is, is how we can be made right before God so that we can pray in a persistent fashion. So my next point here is simply this, how it's possible to pray. The audience, the audience here, as Jesus explains this next parable, are those who trust in themselves and despise others. There are two characters in this parable. There's a Pharisee, and there's a tax collector. The Pharisee would have been the likely candidate to be in the temple praying. The tax collector would have been the unlikely candidate person to be there. They're both in the temple praying. That's the setting. In those days, the temple uh, uh, would, would be a place where people would come and pray. There was corporate prayers where they would, you'd have a big gathering of people and they would pray publicly, kind of like our Sunday night services maybe. But then the temple would, would be open and people could come in and have individual prayers. Now, unlike a lot of our individual praying today, Back in those days, they would pray out loud. Not so loud that it would be obnoxious, but they would pray loud enough for others to hear their individual prayers before God. So we get into the parable, and there's these two men that are in the temple praying. One is a tax collector, and one is a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisee is the kind of person that we would probably identify with. The Pharisee is a loyal individual. Everything externally looks right with the Pharisee. He's loyal to his people. He fights for their rights. He cares for the well-being of Israel. He's there praying. The surprise is across the room is the tax collector. Don't forget how bad tax collectors were. They were greedy. They had no morals. Greedy, no morals, combined, that's a bad thing. They're like ancient gangsters. They sold out their people, working for the mob, a.k.a. Rome. Tax collecting for Rome. Not only were they sellouts collecting taxes for Rome, but they would take additional taxes to pad their own pockets, and it was within their rights to do so. They they would be people, if you lived back then, that you would be tempted to despise. They're both in the temple praying. And because they're praying out loud, we can hear their prayers. The Pharisee, in verse 11 and 12, he prays this way. God, 
I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. This is a man who is trusting in his own righteousness. He's a man who is over the top. You're required to fast this amount. He says, I do even more. You're required to give some of your income. He, he, these, tithe, these Pharisees, they tithe even their herbs. Over the top in their obedience to God. The Bible says, do not get drunk. He says, I don't even look at the stuff. The Bible says, do not lust. He says, I don't even own a computer, never touched one. The Bible says, do not forsake the assembly. He says, I'm the first one there and I unlock the doors. Over the top. Now there's, listen, there's nothing wrong with over the top. In and of itself. It's not the form of his obedience that is the problem. His problem is his pride. Did you notice in his prayer, it's like he glances at God, but he's really talking about himself? He, his prayer is simply this. He is congratulating God with how good he is. God, I just want to say you have made one remarkable individual in me. I have done so much for the kingdom. I've done so much for you. God, I am so thankful that you didn't make me like Eric. I'm so thankful that I'm this way and not that way. I'm so thankful, God, that I am who I am. A self-centered, self-congratulating spirituality. That's all he's got. Listen, there is no sense of sin in his testimony. When he talks about what God has done for him, it's just all positive. He just talks about the great things he's done, and that's pretty much his testimony. There's no sense of brokenness. He doesn't talk about the moment he came to realize that he's a sinner deserving hell. He doesn't talk about the day that he repented and turned from his sins. No, it's, it's, it's all self-righteousness. Listen, God doesn't hear the prayer of the self-righteous. As it goes on, I'm getting ahead of myself, but it says that he was not justified. If you are trusting in your works, you are not made right before God. You're in your sin and you're on your way to hell. Isn't it amazing to think that you can live your whole life so religious, so over the top, and spend all of eternity in hell? It's because he is self-righteous. God doesn't hear his prayer. God doesn't hear his prayer. And church, I'm saying this, we are, we are tempted to identify with the Pharisee. I mean, the fact that you're here on Sundays means uh, that you're probably tempted more to identify with the Pharisee than you are the tax collector. I showed up on Sundays. They never came. I was faithful in my church attendance. They're never around. I, I, I've been faithful before God for many years while they were messing around. I loved my spouse. They were cheating on their spouse. I raised my kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and they neglected and even abused their kids. Oh God, I'm thankful that I'm not made like this individual. And here they are in my church. I can't believe they're here. What do they think they have before God? Listen, God does not hear the prayer, God be impressed with me. God does not hear the prayer, God be amazed with me. We're told in the text what kind of prayer God hears. And that is this. 
Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Yeah, we hear the prayer of the Pharisee, but we also can hear the prayer of the tax collector. In verse 13, the tax collector, he's standing far off. He doesn't even get close. He doesn't feel worthy to to hardly even mingle with the people in the temple. He's off to a distance. His emotions get the best of him. He's filled with godly sorrow that leads to repentance. In verse 13 it says he beat his breast, which was an ancient sign of repentance before God. And he cries out this simple prayer, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The weight of his sin has crushed him. The reality of the way he has lived his life has brought him to the very bottom and he's on the rocks. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Look at verse 14, here's the lesson. He says, I tell you, this man, this man, the tax collector, he leaves out of this place and goes home justified. That word justified means vindicated. It means let off the hook, made right, declared innocent before God. He is justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The point is this, God qualifies the unqualified. God qualifies the unqualified. That's how we can pray. We are justified. We're made right before God because of God's work, not ours. This is a clear picture of the gospel here. The gospel, the good news of Jesus is this, is that Jesus came to die for unrighteous people. He came to die for tax collectors and cheats and people like you and me. Jesus was was called a friend of sinners. He was called a friend of sinners because he hung out with tax collectors who were coming to him to find the hope of forgiveness of sins. How did he bring it? He lived the life that we should have lived, a life with no sin. He died on the cross. Dying on the cross, he took the hell that we deserve on his own self. He paid the penalty for our sin. For all who trust in him, Jesus died for you. He died for you. He's your substitute, your perfect substitute. Now some of you, some of you just kind of sit there and uh, unmoved. I'm not hearing enough amens when I'm preaching the gospel here. Listen, you're unmoved because you forget that you need mercy. You don't feel the desperation that the tax collector feels to cry out, God, have mercy on me because you forget that you need mercy. You don't walk out of here on Sunday mornings with the joy that the tax collector walked out knowing that he was justified before God because you take it for granted and you forget, church, you forget that you need mercy. Imagine that there was a king. The only way to ask the king for anything was to wear a robe. And and they would write on the robe all of your works, all of the good things you've done in the kingdom and all of the bad things done in the kingdom. And you stand before the king in your robes and he looks at you and he he can kind of read a little resume of your works, good and bad in the kingdom. And he will answer your requests based on what he's looking at. Imagine if that was how God treated us. 
Imagine we are standing before God in robes, and on our robes is written all of our works. Good, okay, let's write it down, all the good things you've done, and all the bad things. Every secret thought. Every lustful intent. Every wicked deed, every action. Like everything that you've ever thought, everything you've ever done is now literally on display for for God and all of the world to see. Oh, and by the way, the reasons you did the good things you do, that's written on there as well. Imagine if God said, I'm going to answer your your request based on how your robe looks. How many of us could stand before God with confidence? Don't you understand, church? Listen, you need mercy. You need mercy because we cannot stand before God in our sin. Our sin only condemns us before Him. My works only condemn me before God. What I need, listen, what I need is the blood of Christ. What I need is the gospel. What I need is for my robe to be covered in the blood. To stand before God drenched in the blood of Jesus Christ. Forgiven. Listen, there is never a moment we go before God in prayer on our own. There's never a moment we can stand before him without being covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. Because we are a people who need mercy. Persistent, confident, praying begins with that. What are you covered in, church? Are you covered in your own self-righteousness? Are you covered in your own list of how well you've done in this world before God, before man? Are you covered in the guilt of your sin? Or have you been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ? Has your burden rolled away at Calvary? Have your sins been forgiven at the cross? Is anybody grateful that God is a God of mercy? Is anybody happy that God hears the prayer of the saints as we cry out, Lord, have mercy? Is anybody thankful that we have a Father in heaven that doesn't have a list of demands that we must bring to Him, but He has given us all that we need in His Son, Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. To God be the glory, not to us. Not to us. Oh, this is, listen, church, this is good news for the screw-ups. This is good news for people who make more mistakes than you do good things. Listen, this is good news for the man out on these streets who's, who's trapped and hit rock bottom with his addiction. It's good news for the young man in the trap who keeps selling him the stuff. This is good news for everybody who hits the bottom, comes before God and says, I have nothing. I don't belong in this place. I don't have the clothes to wear. I need the clothing of my older brother, Jesus Christ. I need to be washed in his blood. Church, cry out to him. This is the invitation. Lord, Have mercy. Lord, have mercy. For I am a sinner. And he goes out of here justified. Vindicated. Let off the hook. Because Christ was put on the hook in his place. And he died for his sins. Have you ever heard the phrase, if not for God's grace, There go I. If not for his mercy, there go I. 
Yeah, some of you look a little more like the Pharisee. You've been at this for a long time. You've been doing the right thing for a long time, and praise God for that. But if not for God's mercy, there go I. If it wasn't for His mercy, I would be unfaithful. If it wasn't for His mercy, I wouldn't have been in bed at 11.30 last night. If it wasn't for God's mercy on my life, only I know what I could have been, what I was, what I would still be if it wasn't for His kindness, if it wasn't for His grace, I would be the addict on the street. I would be in the trap if it wasn't for His mercy. Oh, how can we stand before Him in any kind of self-righteousness? How can we stand before Him with anything of our own deeds written on our clothing? If it wasn't for God's mercy, where would I be? Amen. 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 So we come before Him as children. I can't close my sermon without going to the last three verses I read today. Verses 15 through 17. Immediately after these two parables are told, there's a scene. They're bringing infants to him that he might touch them. This would be a sign of blessing. All the little children are being brought by mothers and fathers to Jesus. Now the disciples in verse 15 find this to be annoying. They find the kids to be a distraction. They find the kids to be a nuisance. You know, what if somebody can't hear the sermon because there's a baby crying? And so they try to stop them from bringing the kids to Jesus. And Jesus says in verse 16, let, let the children, let them go into daycare so they don't bother us during the service. Let the children have their own little service. Let the, let the, let the children out of the room. Now, what does he say? He says, let the children come to me. Do not stop them. I don't even need to go on a little tangent here about why we have kids in the service. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. What he's saying is this. He's not saying every kid is going to heaven. He's saying, These are the kind, this is the kind of way that you come to me. This is the way that you approach me. The citizens of the kingdom come to Christ in what way? As adults who got it all together, and we're going to come to Jesus as a partner and shake his hand? No, they come as helpless, persistent, dependent, Trusting little children. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. It's famously said, who has the courage to awake a king at 3 a.m. asking for a cup of water? The answer, his child. His child. I love the example of George Mueller, one of the praying saints of old. Mueller's orphanage at Ashley Downs was not doing well. They were in dire straits. It was breakfast time. They had no food for the kids. With the little girl at his side, he took the girl's hand and Mueller said to the girl, Come. And see what our father will do. He and the little girl kneeled down together. and Mueller prayed, Dear Father, we thank you for what you are going to give us to eat. At that moment, there was a knock on the door. It was the local baker. He said he woke up at 2 a.m. and just felt the desire to make bread for the orphanage that day. And he delivered all the bread. Immediately after he left, there was another knock on the door. 
It was the milkman. His cart broke down in front of the orphanage. And he said, I want to donate all of the milk to the kids so I can get it off my cart so I can fix my cart. Will you take it? Listen, who has the courage to come before a holy and eternal God and ask for a temporal need to be met? Who has the audacity to ask God for bread? Who has the guts to believe that God will listen to this lonely, helpless individual? I will tell you who. It is the kind of man who can come and say, he's my father. Let us ask what our father will do. Who can come before this God? It is his children. Let me ask you this today. Are you a child of God? Have you been adopted into his family? How do we get adopted into the family of God? It is through trusting in our older brother Jesus Christ who made it possible. We come in through Christ. We're in Christ. If Christ is the oldest brother in the room, we're in the family. We've been adopted in the family. And though we are once dead in our trespasses and sins, we have been remade in, and being remade into the image of our older brother. Family, turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, have mercy. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And what a gracious God He is to say, come at all hours of the day, as many times as you want, come to me. How tremendous is it that God has come to us in Christ and says, I want you to be persistent in your requests. While I love the example of Mueller, I also agree with E.M. Bounds, who later went on to say, the central significance of prayer is not in the things that happen as a result, but in the deepening intimacy and unhurried communion with God. God isn't bothered by your prayers. God doesn't ask you to qualify yourself. He doesn't want you to try. God is the one who qualifies. Since God has qualified us to pray, church, let's pray boldly, let's pray persistently, and let's pray like children. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of prayer that we can come before you and ask. God, though we struggle with prayer, I've never met one person who tells me that their prayer life is 100%. I feel like we always, we always believe we could be praying more. And that's true. I pray, God, that we would be driven not, not out of guilt, but out of a joyful sense that we have been recipients of mercy, that we are your children, and that we get to come to you throughout the day, at certain periods of the day, and pray. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.